In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Tensions explode between Fonnie Willis and the governor's office. Welcome to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the podcast we want you to depend on for the most on-the-ground coverage of the 2022 election. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein, along with your other host, Patricia Murphy, and we are two of the political insiders here at the AJC. Patricia, this is like the second event we've had together today because we had a subscriber-only Q&A session. It was really fun because we got to hear questions and comments from our readers and listeners um, all over the nation earlier today. It's true. It's true. So along with the podcast, we will occasionally do these subscriber events. And if anybody is looking for someone to eat their salad with at lunch, you can tune into an AJC (laughs) subscriber Zoom call. And like any Zoom call, I was on mute. (laughs) A couple of times you're like, you were on mute. Actually, that wasn't your fault, though. That, that was, was not even my fault. fault. Blame others. It's true. Blame but others. It's yeah, but it's good because we can sort of, we can give people a little behind the scenes update. I mean, which is pretty much the podcast twice a week, but this is an online Zoom call, you know, every so often. And um, we get great feedback from readers. And we'll put that audio out sometime this week as well. Well, if you're just listening to us for the first time, you can follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. And if you like us, give us a good review. We will gladly accept that and maybe even read it on air, especially if it has to do with my grammar. Coming up later, the parallel universes of the senatorial campaigns. But first, Patricia, I don't think we've ever seen anything like this. This blow up between Fonnie Willis, the Fulton County District Attorney, and Governor Kemp's lawyer. We were under the assumption, now that we know is false assumption, that things were going along quite swimmingly behind the scenes between the governor and the and Fulton County prosecutors who are investigating Trump's attempt to overturn the 2020 election. Uh, even to the point where, you know, we wrote a big story that at the time was very accurate, that governor had agreed to do videotape testimony before the grand jury rather than coming in person. Well, somewhere along the lines, and we can talk about the timeline soon, but somewhere along the lines the relationships frayed. And we had this extraordinary letter from Fonnie Willis that was a a part of the overall motion that the governor's attorney filed this week to block him to try to quash a subpoena seeking his testimony. Basically, the governor's office says at this point, it's too close to the election. They feel like prosecutors are playing games, political games. And at this point, they worry that having to brief the governor, having to, to get him ready for the questioning would take valuable time out of not only his job as governor, but his preparation for the campaign trail, fundraising, all the other things that go into running a, a campaign. But here's some takeaway quotes from this letter. 
quote, the email you have sent is offensive and beneath an officer of the court. You are both wrong and confused. Here's another one. Quote, there is an old adage that people take kindness for weakness. You have taken my kindness for weakness and you have continually treated this investigation with disdain. Despite your disdain, this investigation continues and will not be derailed by anyone's antics. I mean, Patricia, I can just feel the heat simmering as I'm just reading these quotes. I mean, I feel like I'm reading a script from a, a, something on Showtime. It is absolutely like unbelievable. Sort of like something like Succession meets um, House of Cards. I mean, it, this is really very, very dramatic. It also really gives us an insight into when you hear the words secret deliberations among the special grand jury or things happen behind closed doors with the special grand jury process. I mean, this entire back and forth and this disintegrating relationship between Fonnie Willis's office and the governor's team has been going on for more than a year. And I, we did not realize that. And we actually thought that he had already testified to the special grand jury and had no notion that that had not happened um, until this filing was put out uh, just late on Wednesday. And so this is all, I think it took all of us a minute to sort of catch up and say, Hold, wait, what in the world is happening? Because it was so out of view. We had no visibility into this. And this is over the course of the entire legislative session, over the entire last year, while all of these other headlines were going on, this was happening behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. And I have to say one reason I was surprised is because Fonnie Willis has had a really a relatively quite positive relationship with Republicans at the Capitol during the legislative session. They were very, very simpatico on some pieces of legislation related to gang activity and increasing resources for law enforcement and changing some enforcement guidelines. And so she was doing events down at the Capitol with Republican state lawmakers. She was uh, in hearings with Republican state lawmakers, mm -hmm. very, very friendly, very, very much on the same page on a lot of issues. And then to understand that this was happening behind the scenes and has only gotten worse and worse until it has just exploded into public view over the last 24 hours. You know, and Patricia, you're right. She has had a, a friendly relationship with many Republicans. And even in this letter, she she goes out of her way to say that she has deep respect for the office of the governor and a personal relationship with First Lady Marty Kemp and her attempts to crack down on sex trafficking. But at the same time, it's very clear that her relationship with, with the governor's lawyer has, has eroded. And let's talk about the timeline. For weeks, it really seemed like this back and forth. We know this, by the way. We know all this because dozens of emails were included in this motion to quash his subpoena. And so reading these emails was like a glimpse into all these, the inner workings of these proceedings. And so the emails show that for weeks, the back and forth was collegial. Several emails from investigators noted that the governor had a cooperative approach. They were treating him as a cooperative witness. And then in June, the governor's attorney, Brian McAvoy, he reported what he, he called a troubling phone call in which he was told that all the prior arrangements that they had made with Fulton County prosecutors were, were now suddenly off the table. McAvoy called it dramatic change of tone. He said he was disappointed. And then in July, the correspondence took an even sharper approach. We think this is because of something else that's embedded in the court filing. In the court filing, state attorneys said investigators were intentionally attempted to elicit privileged information 
against and retaliated against a former Kemp staffer who testified before the grand jury? Well, we now know from those emails that that former Kemp staffer is Cody Hall, who is a spokesman for the governor's campaign, who was a spokesman in his official office and has now moved over to the campaign. In a July 20th email from McAvoy, he said that prosecutors failed to acknowledge a fundamental and obvious privilege during Cody Hall, Mr. Hall's recent grand jury appearance. And he said, given the politically motivated nature of the office's ongoing investigation and the fact that we are now in an election cycle in Georgia, we are also concerned about potential leaks. So that is what led to Fonnie Willis's missive later on. Her, her email came just a few hours later. That's what triggered this missive from Fonnie Willis, this really extraordinary missive. And to us in Georgia, you know, the big news of the day, especially nationally, was Rudy Giuliani going before, the, going behind closed doors to testify for more than six hours. We don't know what he said, but we can imagine he invoked the Fifth Amendment about 60 times at least. <laughs> at least. Mm -hmm. But here, you know, it's this rift between the governor's office and Fonnie Willis. And so, Patricia, we know that Fonnie Willis wants the governor to testify. We can't be sure what he wants him to testify about. Um, but we do have a, a very big hint because we've seen now through that motion uh, a summary of the documents she, she, that her office is requesting. We're told that they've already turned over tens of thousands, more than 85,000 pages of documents. And we can be reasonably assured that Fonnie Willis wants Governor Kemp to talk about that famous phone call that he received from Donald Trump in December 2020 on the morning before he came to for his first rally down in Valdosta, where he apparently encouraged the governor to call a special session to overturn the results of the 2020 election. Yes. And um, to put that into context, at that rally in Valdosta, he that was when Donald Trump was coming down just red hot saying that the election had been rigged and stolen, that people needed to be fighting for him. So we know what was in Donald Trump's mind. We also know, uh, because Brad Rappensberger recorded and released his phone call, we know all about that phone call. But this one call between Donald Trump and the governor we is one of the ones that we really know almost nothing about because Kemp has never spoken of it. We do know from the January 6th hearings that Donald Trump was calling around to other state leaders and lawmakers pushing them to overturn their election results. And he was doing that in Arizona, in Michigan. And it would be, I think, people's expectation that he would probably have done the same thing to Brian Kemp, but we just don't know. And so I'm certain that that will be a large part of what they want to hear from the governor. But it is so unusual to me that this has taken such an adversarial tone between the two offices, because Brian Kemp what is largely assumed by all by all anything has ever known or thought that he was not involved in Donald Trump's effort to overturn the election that he was resisting this the whole time and so certainly we expected adversarial communications between Rudy Giuliani and Fonnie Willis certainly between Donald Trump that will be extremely adversarial these other people who were the fake electors they are trying to quash their subpoenas but to see this happen with the governor and also see it unfold so publicly and to see the governor's office accuse Fonnie Willis of having an investigation that is politically motivated, I think is very, very troubling kind of to the entire enterprise. It's just something I did. This is a, a curveball I did not see coming. Yeah. And because this is politically Georgia, got to talk about the political implications because Democrats almost immediately 
accused Governor Kemp of trying to cozy up, to suck up to former President Trump. Democrats, the state party immediately said that this was an effort for Kemp to try to basically try to win over Trump's endorsement. And, you know, not that long ago, a few days ago, Trump was asked directly about whether he would endorse Governor Kemp. And he gave kind of a non-answer. Oh, I'll think about it. And when Governor Kemp was asked about if he'd accept Donald Trump's endorsement, he gave the same answer we've heard him give about anyone. I'd need all the help I can get. <laughs> I'll take anyone's help to beat Stacey Abrams. Uh, Democrats were eager to sort of turn that into he's, he's desperate to get Donald Trump's support. And he'd even refused to take the witness stand. What we're hearing from Kemp's office is a different story. We're hearing from folks close to the governor that this is more of an issue of taking time off the campaign trail, taking time out of his official duties with 80 or so days before the election. And, you know, with the with what we said earlier about the testimony involving Cody Hall, where according to this correspondence, he was asked questions that it sounds like the governor's office felt was out of bounds. There might be some worries that questions going to the governor could be out of bounds. So how do you prep him for anything that could come his way? before you know, an illegal proceeding. And so that's how we've gotten to from where he was going to be a very, you know, scripted videotape testimony to now could end up in person in front of special grand jurors who could ask him uh, all sorts of questions. We'll see how this plays out. I, I expect the governor's office to push really hard back, not only on testimony, but also on wanting guardrails around what can be asked and what couldn't. Yeah. And I think it's so important for people to understand just how close of an aide Cody Hall is and has been to the governor. Uh, anything that Cody Hall is asked about would certainly be something the governor would be asked about. So the governor's office got some insight into the direction that Fonnie Willis's team was going in. And to have Cody Hall walk out of that and for the governor's staff to feel that it had been out of bounds for what they asked Cody Hall, they would absolutely assume that the same thing would happen to the governor. And we also see in the pushback from the governor's office, a lot of complaints about the timing here. They said that they that the governor has been trying to, um, has been willing to talk to the DA's office for more than a year. And then we saw in the correspondence in that TikTok that he was starting to get worried that it was going to get wrapped up in the primary campaign season. They, you know, mm-hmm. in December of last year, they said, we don't want this to get to bleed into May, then it could easily be politicized. May has come and gone. <laughs> and now we have November in the right in our windshields. And so it has been politicized already by seeing the Democrats come out so quickly and saying, oh, we told you so. Kemp is in bed with Donald Trump. You know, this entire process now has become fodder for the campaign trail in a way that it really wasn't before. And so for the first time, it feels like this is starting to unravel and bleed into the campaign conversation. And it really felt walled off from that before. Yeah, at least in the governor's race, because certainly in the lieutenant governor's race, (laughs) this has been a part of the conversation (laughs) as well, (laughs) which we have talked about plenty on this show. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. 
Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. And we're back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein, along with your other host, Patricia Murphy. We are two of the political insiders here at the AJC. We're also two of the three authors, along with our Washington correspondent, Tia Mitchell, of the Morning Jolt newsletter, which we like to think sets the stakes and the agenda in Georgia politics. And you can get it in your inbox every morning if you're a subscriber to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You can join the community now by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts. And your first month of unlimited digital access is just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts. So you always know what's really going on. Patricia, we've been on the road a lot. This is one of the few times we're not on the road. And we talked before the show about uh, how we'd set up the second segment, the parallel universes of the senatorial campaigns. Because I was out yesterday in Warner Robins with Senator Raphael Warnock. It's raining and we were under this pavilion, but he fired up the crowd. You were with Herschel Walker in Kennesaw, a big crowd of women Republican supporters at a women's event there. They were really starkly uh, contrasted. I mean, we can say that about anything in in politics these days, but between these two events, you couldn't have had pretty much a, a bigger divide. Yes. Well, I know what I saw at the Governor's Gun Club. It is an indoor shooting range in Kennesaw where it has become sort of a a frequent campaign stop for Republicans. Donald Trump Jr. had a big event there in the 2020 campaign. But so Herschel Walker's team held a Women for Herschel event. I didn't really know what to expect. It was a Wednesday at six o'clock. I mean, school has just started in a lot of districts. I just didn't know what kind of turnout they would get. I walk in. I mean, there's 500 women there and so crowded that the fire marshal had to shut it down because there were so many people there. And it was, you know, I wrote my column about it that's going to be coming out on Sunday. I said it was kind of like a Baptist revival mixed with a junior league lunch. It was just like (laughs) all of these women praying for Herschel, cheering for Herschel. I I would you know, call him Herschel because that's what they're calling him. They feel like they know him. They absolutely adore him. There is nothing that you or I or any member of the media could report about Herschel Walker that is going to change these women's minds. So these are devoted, devoted Herschel Walker supporters really feel many of them who I talked to said they feel that he has been chosen by God to run against Reverend Raphael Warnock. And he had a real stem winder of a speech that he really unloaded on Warnock. And it really did feel I mean, the from the issues being discussed to the tone, to the um, to the approach to the Senate campaign. These are two men who are so similar in so many ways. These are both very religious men, both from disadvantaged backgrounds, really kind of a um, sort of self made men who went in very different paths. And now they are just on total opposite sides of this political conversation. And so it's so fascinating that these are the two men that we now have as our two Senate nominees. And Herschel Walker clearly relished the big environment. And my people are all of you. You're my family. And we protect our family. And so that's why, if I'm no family, 
That was one of his closing lines. Patricia, you are my family. I'm going to protect my family. And it really seems to resonate with the audience. Oh, yeah. I mean, the huge standing ovation there. Then there was a long, long line of uh, people waiting for pictures with Herschel Walker. And there were certainly some men had come to the event with their Herschel Walker jerseys to sign and some helmets to sign. And so it really was this kind of mix of like fan day mixed with um, it just was the last thing it felt like was a political event. (laughs) And so, you know, that's the kind of energy that any campaign would love to have. But the question for Herschel Walker is, what is the appeal beyond this group? I mean, he. this is a group that was very anti-abortion. Uh, he completely mocked the concept that anybody could be transgender at several points in his speech and got a ton of applause. And just a lot of conversation from especially the women on stage it, that they're not comfortable with some of the changes that we're seeing in Georgia politics and U.S. politics. And they feel like somebody like Herschel Walker, they called a gladiator to fight for their values. Hmm, gladiator. Um, that, that's, a, that's, a, yeah. that's a sharp word. <laughs> meanwhile, down in Warner Robins, there was a very different scene. Uh, Senator Warnock had just been at Dobbins Air Force Base nearby, held a press conference with John Ossoff, with the mayor of Warner Robins, talking about support for the military base, and then had his first campaign rally, his first stop in this bus tour near a church, a very in this big parking lot with a little pavilion. And right before he was supposed to make his appearance, it just started pouring. And so all the supporters and all the and the few reporters who were there, but but the dozens and dozens of of supporters who were there to hear Senator Warnock speak, kind of piled under this little soggy pavilion to listen to the senator who showed up a few minutes later and gave a rousing speech that started with a sort of sense that we've been here before. If it feels like it wasn't long ago. <laughs> that we were gathered in a place like this focused on an election that would have enormous consequences for our children and their children and their children in a defining moment in America. If it feels like we were doing this not long ago. I brought by Warner Robbins to tell you that this is not an experience of collective deja vu. <laughs> no, it's not. Felt like the campaign trail has not really ended the campaign season. He certainly, Senator Warnock, knows this better than anyone because he never stopped running. But one of the main elements he had in the speech was his focus on what Democrats call the Inflation Reduction Act, but basically the sweeping $340 billion plus, $430 billion. can't remember the exact price tag. It's hundreds of billions of dollars that is aimed squarely at combating climate change, expanding healthcare subsidies, raising taxes for some large corporations, and really serving as the cornerstone of President Biden's economic agenda. Among the things we did was we finally capped the cost of prescription drugs for our seniors because they should not choose between my groceries and we cap the cost of insulin for folks who are on Medicare to no more than $35 per month of out-of-pocket cost. 
Trisha, you know, this is the Democrats' challenge right now. We've talked so many times about how the economy is the number one issue for so many voters, and voters want to see that their candidates are doing something about the high inflation. Well, Democrats now have this Inflation Reduction Act that they'll be touting on the campaign trail. They've only got two months to tell voters what's actually in it. Yeah, and there's a lot in that. And so it is a challenge. It's a communications challenge. But you definitely get the feeling that it's a challenge that Warnock is up to because he was up there during the drafting of this bill. And so many pieces of this have been really tailored and delivered for Raphael Warnock to take out on the campaign trail. And so when we hear right there him talking about the cap on insulin, that is something that he has been pushing for. That has been a kind of a Senate wish list item for a long, long time. But Democrats were able to get behind that and really tap him to take the lead on that this time around, knowing that he's in cycle and knowing that he needs to have these wins to take back to voters. So although I think uh, Democrats were skeptical, even amongst themselves, that they were going to get this thing across the finish line, they really did. And so they are having to not only say, and Ossoff has said this, it's not that it's just a good idea. It's not just something that they think would be great. Like it's actually happened. And so this is, yeah, exactly. It's concrete. It's happening. Here's when you can expect it. Now, the response to that from Herschel Walker has been a lot less difficult to manage. All he has to do is say, wow, that's real expensive and your taxes are going up. And he absolutely said that in Kennesaw on Wednesday. And his line is, don't let anybody lie to you about this bill. This is all going to trickle down. These taxes are going to be on the little guy. And that's not technically how the bill is written. These taxes are targeted specifically at corporations that make a billion dollars per year. So kind of the biggest corporations or some of the biggest. And it's designed to make sure that the biggest corporations actually pay some amount of tax because there's been a lot of reporting. Whenever that happens, everybody says, well, why doesn't Congress do something about it? So Congress has done something about it. Companies like Amazon are going to have taxes to pay at the end of every year. So that's why that piece is in there. It also raises quite a bit of revenue. Democrats have also included quite a bit of funding for the IRS. And that is to increase this nebulous waste, fraud, and abuse that everybody promises to deal with in every bill, it seems like, that comes through Washington. They have actually put money behind that. However, Republicans are coming in and saying, no, no, guess what? That means that the IRS has now been weaponized and they're coming after you too. And that's something that Herschel Walker's been saying. So instead of letting the Democrats run with this, Herschel Walker is saying, your taxes are going to go up even if you're a little guy, even if you're a minority, especially if you're a minority, especially if you're living paycheck to paycheck, he said, this bill is going to raise your taxes. And also the IRS is coming after you. So don't get comfortable. Well, that is the Republican counterpunch. We will be talking plenty about this in the campaign trail. And I'll have a story about it in, in your AJC. As you, as you listen to this, it'll probably already be out. Well, now as one of our favorite segments of the show, you can now call the Politically Georgia podcast hotline anytime, leave a question, and we'll play it back and answer your question right here on the podcast. That's 24-7 because our producer, Shaney B, does not have enough to do cleaning up all of our mistakes. So you can call that number at 770-810-5297. That's 770-810-5297. Operators with Shaney B's team are standing by. What mistakes are you talking about? Never. <laughs> what what the podcast listener hears 
is just the raw, uncut perfection of Greg and Patricia. Every the sheer brilliance. There's never any delays either. There's never any tech issues or delays or anything like that. Everything works seamlessly. We're not 90 minutes behind schedule right now. Not at all. Not at all. Shane, what do we have? All right. We're going to start things off with Ellen. She called the Politically Georgia podcast hotline at 770-810-5297. Let's hear from Ellen. I have a question about this billion dollar uh, tax refund in terms of who is that really going to benefit? Um, I, like many um, retired people, uh, Social Security is a big part of my income. And although I seem to keep owing the state of Georgia a few dollars every year, they also seem to send it back to me. So um, I know that this has no impact on me. And the other is, how much could a billion dollars do to improve our health care in this state? Well, Ellen, it's a great question. So we have two dueling proposals for billion-dollar tax rebates. One is from Governor Kemp, who said actually he'll spend about $2 billion in state surplus money uh, to provide a replay of the income tax rebates that lawmakers approved in March, and he'd want to resurrect a more than 20-year-old property tax rate that died during the Great Recession. So for most Georgia households, that will equal about $1,000 under the House Bill 1302 that passed earlier this year. Single Georgians received a $250 refund, joint fathers $500. That would kind of be the same premise that this Governor Kemp's repeat of this would look like. Stacey Abrams has her own $1 billion plus rebate that she's promoted, and hers would go to the neediest of Georgians, uh, middle class and lower income Georgians, it would not be offered to wealthier Georgians who she feels like don't, you know, wouldn't benefit as much as people making less money. That's the gut of it. But really, when you ask about healthcare, we've seen fiscal notes for expanding Medicaid that range from 250 million or so, 300 million to more than 500, 600 million. Either way, Stacey Abrams says there's enough money in the surplus, which now tops $5 billion, to expand Medicaid. And most Democrats, including her, say that the benefits will pay off in the long term from more economic development, from you know hiring more economic expansion, the, the new funding that goes into the healthcare sector of the economy. Whereas Republicans, A, they're worried about the cost. B, if you talk to Governor Kemp about it, it's not just the cost he's worried about. He's concerned that expanding Medicare, Medicare long term would be too inflexible. It ties Georgia to what he sees as a one-size-fits-all policy. Yeah, we've also heard Republicans say that uh, if you did something like expand Medicaid or take any other sort of major structural change with a one-time surplus, then you are really going to be digging a hole for yourself in the out years. Now, Democrats, as Greg pointed out, and especially Stacey Abrams has made the case that you can expand it and then that will create jobs, especially in rural areas with more healthcare jobs, more people working in that industry. And so that in itself would sort of lift all boats in that area. And so Abrams has made the case uh, that not only uh, you might have a a one-time outlay up front and additional outlays later, but overall, it will bring down the cost of healthcare for the state because people will just be healthier in the long term and there'll be more jobs created and tied to that industry permanently. Producer Shane, what else we got? 
Next up on the line is Patrick. He has a question about Senator Warnock going after Herschel Walker. Why do you think we haven't really seen kind of the Warnock campaign or Democratic uh, leaning groups really go after him as much? Um, you know, I've kind of been thinking compared to like um, in Pennsylvania where uh, Fetterman has been really uh, going after Oz, why, you know, it seems like there's kind of a different tactic here. And I thought, you know, maybe does, is there a reason right now that they're maybe just not ready to go negative or you think that's just not really kind of their campaign strategy, campaign philosophy? So I think there are multiple different Democratic approaches, and they're all happening at the same time. So we have started to see some very negative ads against Herschel Walker, and those are from either Democratic groups, and they're pushing out, For you may have seen the ad with Herschel Walker talking about the COVID mist that will kill all of the COVID germs on your body. That was a Democratic ad. There's also a very hard-hitting GOP ad that is out rolling footage past footage of Herschel Walker's ex-wife talking about their domestic violence situation. Uh, now, Herschel Walker has responded to that, I think, in a way that was really actually quite effective. But the Raphael Warnock campaign has not been so negative. I think that they feel like they have a almost a pristine brand in Raphael Warnock, that he is somebody who is perceived as having run a positive campaign. His last campaign really felt like it was lifted to success by his positive campaign ads. And so I think that's a, a lane that they're going to stay in. Now, I think also we have not yet seen the real mud in this pit quite yet. Yeah. So let's wait until yeah. <laughs> October. And then I think we can assess the negative messages coming out of each campaign. I agree, Patricia. I think we've only seen sort of the first phase. A lot of so far, we've seen a lot of positive Warnock spots and a few that try to use Herschel Walker's own words against him to undermine his credibility. I feel like once the Warnock campaign is confident that that message is setting in, they'll take a different tack. But we will see. Jenny, do we have a third question this week? We have one more. This caller did not leave a name. But I, I got to tell you, Greg and Patricia, I'm really impressed because we get phone calls, not just here in Georgia, but the other other week we heard from Fran in New Jersey. Well, now <laughs> apparently you're getting calls from across the pond. And I suspect this caller might be the president of the Patricia Murphy fan club. Wow. <laughs> Go ahead, caller. You're on the air. I love you, Patricia. And I was just wondering if you could, um, if you could tell me if you would think if John Ossoff should run again and why. <laughs> is, is that a tiny little chimney sweep? <laughs> Greg, that sounds a lot like your daughter's British accent. <laughs> hey, Brooke, can you come over here for a second? Brookie, I need you real quick. Yeah, I need you real quick. You know how last week we talked about how, last show we talked about how my daughter liked to prank call and use a British accent? Well, that was my daughter. <laughs> they just played your, your, your question. To, do, your, do your British accent. Wait. Do that. Hello, did you vote for? I love Patricia, whatever that was. Hey, wait, I don't remember. You said, should John Ossoff run again or something? Hey, wait, I love Patricia. Should John Ossoff run again? Oh, hello. That was it. <laughs> Patricia says hi. That was amazing. 
I can't hear. She said that that was an amazing call, <laughs> and we will answer your question right now about whether John Ossoff will run again because it still is a question. And yes, we can be we can rest assured he's going to run again. He's been everywhere. He's been out as much as Senator Warnock has, honestly, uh, on the campaign trail this week. He had multiple events in middle Georgia this week alone. And uh, one of the unique things that he's doing, he's going to a lot of Republican areas. He is hanging out with a lot of Republican officials. He was in Dalton to celebrate an electric vehicle a solar manufacturing site there. He's been at events with, and he's made connections with Gary Black, the agriculture commissioner, John King, the insurance commissioner, all that. But Patricia, that question was awesome. That question was and amazing. <laughs> My kid's British accent is just uncanny. uncanny. But we do have listeners across the uh, across it the It feels pond, very so Mary we, Poppins inspired. I loved it. Um, hello. Hello, governor. <laughs> Son of that. <laughs> Yeah. Where's your umbrella? <laughs> you know, I actually saw Asaf. Um, I went up to D.C. recently and went in to see him in his office. And I'm working on a column that is coming out TBD. He is taking steps as a new senator. He's doing things I've really just never heard a, of a senator doing before. I think it's kind of the, it's the benefit of being 34 years old and no experience <laughs> in this line of work. Um, because he has kind of a fresh take on a lot of things. And so I'm excited to write this column because it he is uh, definitely taking a tack that is highly unusual, including going into all these Republican areas. I think it's a Oh, an approach that somebody like Johnny Isaacson used to take. It is less mm-hmm. and less frequent approach to the job than we have seen, um, especially, you know, over the last few years. And so also, if I, he has not made any announcements about whether he's running again or not. But he certainly is getting in and doing long days, long nights and interesting work as as a new senator. Yeah, he's running again. <laughs> he's running again. And he also has four years. Um, you know, he, he can do all those things you were just talking about, Patricia, because he's got four years to do them. So that is how we take a prank call and turn it into, <laughs> into a newsworthy analysis where both of us have predictions about John Ossoff's future. <laughs> who's not running right um, now? Who's up and who's down, Patricia? Who's your up? My up is State Senator Burt Jones, who literally surprised me this week when Axios Atlanta did a survey of the statewide candidates, how they feel about same-sex marriage. And Burt Jones was the outlier on that and said that he is in favor of same-sex marriage. And he had a quote, if I can find it here, his quote was that he believes Georgians should be with who you want to love. And uh, that is a surprising position to me. I, I don't know why, but I think it's an unusual stance for a statewide GOP candidate and came out and put it on the record during an election season. It's certainly, you know, it's not radical thinking in 2022, but it certainly is a position I didn't expect uh, Burt Jones, of all people to take, who really is quite conservative, running his first statewide race and, you know, something uh, to take a position that is outside what is expected. And unlike the rest of the statewide contenders, was a surprise to me. So Burt Jones is up this week for me. And I think his camp was a little worried that there could be some blowback, but I haven't heard of significant I've blowback. I haven't heard anything. In fact, yeah, in fact, Stacey Abrams used Governor Kemp's um, response, which is he personally believes marriage should be between a man and a woman, but isn't going to plan to you know do anything legislatively to change that. She used that as an, as a, uh, as an opportunity to blast him over that topic. Um, my 
who's up is going to be President Joe Biden. I don't think I've ever said he's my who's up before because he's been had a lot of rough weeks. But in the past few days, it really capped off a string of legislative successes. We've talked about the CHIPS Act, which is intended to boost semiconductor and computer chip production in Georgia. Gas prices are sort of leveling off or going down around the country. And of course, he signed into law what Democrats call the Inflation Reduction Act, which is that massive federal healthcare, tax, climate change bill that really is a pillar of his economic policy. This is continuing his efforts to sort of remake the U.S. economy. After the America Rescue Plan, the Coronavirus Relief Act, early in his term, then the bipartisan infrastructure bill. And this makes the third huge piece of legislation that Biden has successfully engineered. Patricia, who's your who's down? So my who's down this week is Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis. The investigation that she has going, um, the special grand jury investigating Donald Trump, I think it's so important for this entire process to be seen as really pristine, as totally apart from politics. And there have just been multiple communications from Republicans that, and you would expect this for some Republicans, um, that they are accusing her of being politically motivated. And it's they're just injecting that into the conversation more and more. There is a recall effort that's starting up against her from, and that is from the kind of a very far right group of Republicans. But now the electors, the fake electors who she has called targets are saying that she should also be recused from this her politically motivated. And then for the governor's attorney to also accuse this investigation of being politically motivated when the governor's office really did not have a dog in this fight. That is, I feel like it's just been a week that has sullied the public perception of that investigation, although certainly not, you know, the details of what's actually happening behind closed doors. My who's down is related and be Rudy Giuliani, who tried and tried and tried to avoid testifying behind closed doors to that special grand jury. He even said that because of a heart condition, he can't fly to Georgia. A judge reminded him that we still have highways and other ways to get to to Atlanta, even from up in the Northeast. And it turned out that uh, he ended up flying here anyway. (laughs) So my who's down would be Rudy, who, you know, his, his efforts to block the subpoena failed and he still had to go behind closed doors and prosecutors made sure they made the most of that time, six hours. We're sure he didn't say much, or I'm pretty sure he didn't say much. We don't know what he said, but still six hours of testimony. And the fact also for him this week, even worse, is that he was notified that he is a target of potential criminal charges. So bad week for Rudy. And and to Patricia, it's a bad week for Fonnie. So our two downs both involve that Fulton County grand jury probe. Well, thanks for listening to the Politically Georgia podcast. You can count on new episodes to come out every Wednesday and Friday or whenever news breaks. You might even hear another prank call from my daughter. We will see you next time on Politically Georgia from the AJC. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years and I am still amazed at how rich the city's black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that black people might want to know about. Like historically black colleges and universities. 
Atlanta's thriving art scene, and the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologeticallyATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.